You're the one true and living God. So we thank you. Have your way. Speak to our hearts, Holy Spirit. And grant that we hear you. In the majestic, wonderful, marvelous, matchless, omnipotent name of he who loved us enough to die for us, Jesus Christ, who is our Lord. Amen. Amen. I want to lift up a passage of scripture this morning. Just, just one verse. Just one verse. And I'm going to stand while I read it, and then we're going to dig in. Verse, verse 4. Verse 4. Psalm 23, verse 4. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Amen. I want to talk this morning uh, for the next few moments. Um, and, and I want to look at this passage. And I want to talk about the temptation of fear. The temptation of fear. You know, many times we we in the Christian world, we love those acrostics. So when we get fear, we, we took that and, and <clears throat> we ran with it. False evidence that appears real. That's a really sweet acrostic. That just, man, that really speaks to what, you know, the average fear can be. It's false evidence that appears real. Many times stuff we fear is not even there. Uh, we fear the boogeyman. There's no boogeyman. Uh, uh, you know, you, we, we fear stuff that is not, not, not even around. That it's amazing to me how we allow ourselves to scare ourselves into stuff and, and nothing's going to happen. And, and a lot of times it's just false foolishness. It's not real at all. We just, we're just dealing with stuff in our own minds. But then there are times when there are really things to be unnerved by. Stuff that really happens. There are things that really are not false. This COVID-19 is not a false evidence that appears real. It's real. It's a pandemic. WHO, the World Health Organization, finally described it as such. It is worldwide. Nothing false about it. What really is the problem is not that there is a pandemic in the world. I'm not saying that's not a problem. That's a major problem. But what our problem is, from what we can control, is how we respond to what is happening. What do we let fear do to us? What do we allow fear to take over in our lives? How do we deal with something that is real? I was, uh, I was just reminiscing in my own spirit about a few years ago, most of you probably remember, I think it was in 2009, U.S. Air Flight 1549 was uh, flying out of the airport there. And as they left the airport, the plane was hit by a bird. And the bird strike went into the engine, talked the engine out. There were 155 people on board that plane. Their captain, uh, Chesley Burnett Sully Sullenberger, better known as Sully, Captain Sully, flew that plane right there without an engine and then went into the Hudson River landed a plane on water and watched it float. 
Now that's something else right there. I did you know, call it a miracle if you want to. Miracle on the Hudson. I think it seems miraculous to me. But what I really realize is that Captain Sullenberger had to do something that many of us don't often get called upon to do. That is control his emotions. The first time something goes wrong, he did not start screaming and panicking. Ah! Can you imagine the captain coming over to the microphone saying, ladies and gentlemen, we just hit a bird. Pray to your God. <laughs> you know, you need somebody that's at the helm that can say, I don't know how this is going to turn out. But I'm going to do what my training and what my experience has taught me to do. And I think if I'm right, and if the good Lord will be with us, we're going to all get out of this alive. Yeah. Some people push into panic mode whenever anything goes wrong. And so they sit around, they start thinking about all the stuff that's happening. Oh my God, this is happening, that's happening, this is wrong, that's wrong. Oh my God, what's the world going to come to? The economy's never going to recover. Well, those of us who lived through the last recession realize that recessions do come and they go. Many of us who have struggled in life, who've been poor, we realize money comes and money goes. And God has a way of restoring and I do believe that God will restore. I don't believe this is anything permanent. This is not like the Great Depression where the market went. No, we've got a lot of industry and complex jobs that will be restored. And things are going to come back to order if we can just hold and hit the pause button long enough to let this death angel pass over. To let this situation in. Yeah, I know the numbers are scary. Numbers will make anybody a little nervous. But what I even realize is this, that I put my confidence not in the CDC, not in the government, not in any doctor or nurse, and I love them all, and God bless those frontline providers, those nurses and doctors and orderlies and technicians and those that go in and clean up the rooms to prepare for the next patient. Those persons working in the facilities of each of those hospitals are as important as any doctor and any orderly nurse. They can't work without them. I, I put my prayers up for them. My prayers are for every police officer and fire person and, and EMS worker. Yes, all of them. But I do know this much. This will pass. This too will pass. This too will pass. Now, I think fears are stimulated by a lot of things. I mean, there's so much uncertainty. People are uncertain about their their income. They're uncertain about whether their job will be there when they get back. They're uncertain about what's going to happen next there, here, there. A few things that jumped in my spirit when I was thinking about this sermon. And the first, the first thing I thought about is many times we fear and we struggle with fear. It's the fear of where you are alone. It's the where. It's the where. Yeah, I know you, sometimes when you're in a certain place, that aloneness gets even more difficult, the where you are alone. 
Yeah, I, I remember um, uh, the word death, he says, well, the valley of the shadow of death. That word death actually could be replaced with darkness. Darkness and death have a parallel interpretation or translation. So I, I remember one time my wife and I, we were traveling, boy, Lady Cynthia and I, we were coming back. I think we actually might have been, uh, been coming back from Ohio. And uh, we, we have been traveling that way several times. And it's a fun ride, a beautiful ride. Uh, it's a picturesque ride through the Pennsylvania mountainsides, and large expansive bridges that overlook long, beautiful, lush greenery and treetops. Now the bridges are up so high there that when you're on the bridge, you're actually looking down at 100 foot trees. So it's a, this is a high bridge. You are up there, you're riding. It's a beautiful ride. It looks really great. Until one day we were coming back from there and a deep fog came in and it was raining and that beautiful picturesque trip turned into what almost was a nightmare because you could sense the forebodingness of the, the rain popping down and then the tide looked like it just got dark all of a sudden. It was deep dark, oh, it was something else. And, and there was one other problem there. We knew where we were, which meant that we knew that if we went over the side, we were going way down. <laughs> Yeah, the truth of the matter is the fog, the darkness, the rain made it uncomfortable. Made it uncomfortable. Didn't really bother me because, you know, I, I had learned actually years for, before how to drive in rough weather and difficult places. Because when I was driving myself, in my car with my grandfather, my dad was leading us. We were heading to Alabama. During those early days as an 18, 19 year old riding, we were on two lane roads, some on high hills, and he would make us, we were following him. And back then there was no GPS, so we kept up with each other when we made those long journeys south. And I just got used to it. The fear of riding in rain, the fear of riding on tight pathways was eradicated. The first time it happened, I thought I was going to lose it, not, but I was 18, 19. But now, I was an old grown man driving in that same place with the fog and the rain, the forebodingness, and guess what? My time in the world, my experience with driving, my experience with having followed my father and having had the sagacious advice of my granddad on the side of me and my Buick 225 Deuce and a quarter had taught me lessons. I want to tell you something. You have to remember your training. That's what Captain Sullenberg did. He remembered his training. He had been in the, in the service. He had been a military person. He had been a pilot as a commercial pilot. Now, when a crisis happened, he just remembered his training. Let me do this for believers because this is going to bless you right here. It will tie it all together. Every believer has to remember what God has done for you already. 
what you've already been through, what you've already trained up through, the stuff you've already gone through, yes, when you were a babe in Christ to now where you're a mature believer. You've got to remember who you are in God. Remember what God has already done. The God you serve has never left you before. What makes you think he's going anywhere now? He's kept you before. What makes you think he won't keep you now? He's healed you before. What makes you think he won't heal you now? He's delivered you before. What makes you believe he won't deliver you now? He's covered your doorpost with the blood before. What makes you believe he won't cover your doorpost with the blood now? You have to trust in all of your training and in all of your experience and know even if it looks foreboding. My wife and I, we kept driving in that rain, in that Ohio road. Other cars were pulling over. Other cars were stopping. And we kept riding with one thought in mind that sooner or later, we're going to come out of this. And all we need to do, we don't need to speed. We need to see as much as we can ahead of us and just go steady. And just like that fog and rain had come in, all of a sudden, we burst through. We could look behind us and see it's still raining. We could look behind us and see the deep fog, but we were in the light. I want to say this to you. Just because it appears to be foggy and rainy or even darkness now doesn't mean the light's not shining. Because God's still shining his light. There will be a breakthrough. There will be a breakthrough. The second thing I want to tell you, this might mess somebody up right here. It's not just the fear of where you are, but it's also the fear of oh, what you are when you're alone. What you are. Now, now hold that for a second, Brother Solomon, because I need the what to stay on the screen because somebody needs to get this. It's the fear of what you are. Now remember, this is the shepherd's song. So if the shepherd is using this song, he's talking about sheep. So if the sheep are walking through, the shepherd is guiding them, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow. Wait a minute. Hold on. The what here is the sheep. And uh, thank you, brother. If I think about it long enough, nobody wants to be sheep. Um, I, I, people talk about people uh, in the uh, who like uh, firearms. If you ever watch any of the YouTube videos, they talk about people who don't care for firearms, non-Second Amendment people as sheeples. They'll call them sheep. People talk derisively of sheep. You know, you can't be sheep. You ought to be nothing sheep. You ought to be rough. You ought to be tough. Rough, rough. I'm going to come back and preach on this. Because you really want to be a sheep. Now, that's a little unnerving in the metaphor. If you keep the metaphor going, it's a little unnerving. Because sheep are defenseless. They don't really fight. They're defenseless. I mean, at least if you're an elephant, you might not be fast, but you got size. If you're a lion, at least you got a roar, you got teeth, you got claws. 
Even a lowly porcupine has a spiky needle. Even a skunk has the funk. You, you, but a sheep, what my defense here? If I'm a sheep, then I'm defenseless in the metaphor. Well, come on back. That's because you're not responsible for taking care of it. The shepherd is. And if you stay sheep and let the shepherd protect you, the shepherd defend you, the shepherd lead you, the shepherd guide you, the shepherd provide for you, the shepherd take care of you, you don't have to worry. Shepherds take worry off of sheep. Oh, I need to say that again. The shepherd takes the worry off the sheep. The sheep does not have to worry about provision because the shepherd is there to provide. That's why he leads you beside the quiet waters. The shepherd is there to protect you. I'll come back to that next week. Oh my goodness. The shepherd has it. So you don't have to fear what you are. When you're alone, because you really want to be a sheep. Oh, watch what I do with this one next week. Oh, I'm getting excited, y'all. Listen, last point. Last point. It's the fear of when you are alone. If you notice, I keep using the word alone. Because the, 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 the wording here is, yea, though I walk, singular. And I use the aloneness because right now we're practicing social distancing, which is almost turned in for some into social isolation. I think that's the trick of the enemy. The social distancing is good because we need it. Social isolation is not because we need to keep communing with each other. We need to keep fellowshipping with each other. We need to keep talking with each other because we are fellowshipping creatures. If you really want to mess someone up that's a communal creature, put them in solitary confinement because the isolation alone will drive them out of their mind. What you have to realize is that the isolation doesn't have to be such. He says... I need to know that even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I don't have to fear because you, I'm not alone. God's army said, you know my name. So I don't have to worry. Oh, how he walks with me. Oh, how he talks with me. Oh, how he tells me that I am his own. Oh, man. I'm getting excited. Let me, let, me, let, me, let, me, let me tell you something. I know you might be feeling like, oh, my God, how am I going to deal with this time alone? It's funny. Um, um, my, my good buddy, Dr. C.L. Stallworth, posted a picture on his Facebook uh, yesterday of him laying across his bed, and he was saying, uh, how many times I wished on a Saturday I could lay across my bed and just relax while I was preparing for Sunday. He said, and now that I have this moment, I want to go somewhere. 
I, I didn't quite quote it perfectly, but it's close enough. You can see it. The, the truth of the matter is that, that that time when we're by ourselves can be made productive. And I'm going to close my sermon when I get to this. Because, see, I want to say that while we're in this moment, you need to ask God, God, what do you want to get done? What can we do in this moment that we couldn't have done any other moment? What did you want to do inside of me? How did you want to grow me during this season? I refuse to sit around in fear when I know there's something good is supposed to happen to me. I refuse to sit around worrying about what the next newscast is going to be. How many thousands here? How many thousands there? Isolation here? Quarantine there? I ain't worried about none of that. God, what you doing with me? Because it's me, it's me, it's me. Oh, Lord, let me preach this thing. I'm going to my seat. I'm done. Oh, I am sitting down. Watch this. Here it goes. When, when you look at the story of Martin Luther King Jr., and you think about the civil rights protests, just remember when they got to Birmingham, every city when they were protesting, they would try to arrest them. They take them in peacefully. They bring them in. And then they'd all corral in one cell, a few cells, and they'd all be singing and praying and having a good time. And it was just like, oh, home week in jail for a little while. And then they got where they got a little more rough and a little more gruff with them. But what they always did was even when they put them in separate cells, they would always put Martin King and Ralph Abernathy in the same cell. And so they would sit in there, they would plan out where the next march gonna be, we're gonna march down here, we're gonna do this, we're gonna do that. King would say this, Ralph would say that, they'd have a great time, it'd be great old home week fellowship. But when they got to Birmingham, in Birmingham, that was the first time they pulled King out and put him in a separate cell. And there he was in the isolation of his own cell. Nobody couldn't talk to anybody, couldn't do anything, couldn't have the fellowship, couldn't sing the song, couldn't pray the prayer. There was no community around him. But at that moment, King began to write in the cell. And as he began to write, and they say he wrote on the back of toilet tissue. He wrote on the back of paper that was in there, loose papers. And there in the jail cell, he wrote his most famous work, his letter from a Birmingham jail. I just want to tell you this. I don't know what God's going to do inside of your isolation. But I know if you get rid of the fear and you just go ahead and trust God, God will do something spectacular while you're by yourself. He'll speak to you in ways he couldn't speak to you in the crowd. He'll wake you up and say, here my daughter, here my son, here go ahead. This is a word for the weary, a word for the worn, a word for those who've been going through. I got something I want to do with you. I pause the world so I can speak to you. Speak to my heart, Holy Spirit. Give me a word that'll bring new life. God is going to do something in the middle of the mess. It may be a mess now, but the God we serve will use the mess to make a miracle. He'll use the mess to get a message. He'll use the mess to give us new meaning for our lives. I'll resist the temptation to fear. Because the Lord is my shepherd. Hallelujah.
Hallelujah! Hallelujah! Hallelujah!